This is a CNIB Foundation podcast. Because Braille. Hi, welcome back to Because Braille. Today in the studio in Toronto, I have Darlene Bogard chatting with me today. And Darlene has been involved with CNIB Braille and production since 1964. That's a very long time to be dedicated to an organization, Darlene. Thank you for joining us in the studio today. It's my pleasure. I'm glad to be here. So tell us what was going on back in 1964. Well, I was a young woman. I had just finished being a high school teacher. I was going to have a family, and I needed something to occupy myself. And that was when students were starting to be integrated into the schools in Toronto. They were the first in, in, in Ontario. And so um, I heard about the Braille class, and I decided to investigate it. And so I started taking the Braille transcribers course. And that lasted for about six months at that time. And my very first book to Braille was one that I had actually taught. It was an economics book for grade 12 students. That was the first book you Brailled. That's right. Wow, how ambitious. <laughs> so the Braille transcription course, that it was six months, had you had any exposure to Braille before signing up for this? No, I hadn't. Although my mother-in-law had been um, called a VAD, in the First World War, working with blinded veterans, and so she predated the, you know, the establishment of CNIB, and she was very uh, involved with CNIB, the blinded veterans particularly, and so I knew about CNIB in that way, and she made a suggestion to me that I should come and see what CNIB had to offer. So I always tell the story that I came in my hat and white gloves to a luncheon meeting along with Colonel Baker's daughter-in-law and one other volunteer, and we were uh, became members of the Toronto Women's Auxiliary to the CNIB. Were you the first members? Or? No. It was a well-established group um, who did an enormous amount of work for CNIB. And that, of course, has it grew into the Volunteer Bureau and uh, volunteers being involved in many, many, many more things. But they were the ones that really established it. And, and I belonged to that for quite some time, was the president of it as well, and um, very interested in training volunteers, orienting volunteers about blindness and uh, about literacy and so on. So I did that as well as my Braille. So this Braille transcription course, was it voluntary? Did Yes, you... absolutely. And so you... What was your timeline? Like you said, it was six months to take the course. How much work each day or week did you have to put in? Well, they really asked us for about two hours a day at least uh, during the course because you need to keep on practicing. You can't sort of do it one day a week, you know, for a long period of time. So you just keep doing that. And quite honestly, like I got bitten by the Braille bug, and I would rather sit at that Perkins Brailler pounding away than doing housework or just about anything else. It was so challenging. And so 
Tell me about the Braille transcription course. Is that something that's still around today? It is. It's longer, a little more difficult, simply because we have changed our Braille code to include all kinds of technical material, like math, science, chemistry, whereas before we had separate codes to do all of that. So the course that I took was purely literary. But today we give a smattering of all of that in the, uh, in the transcriber's course. So it's about eight months now. And when you say that you would sit at the Brailler and, and practice and turn things out, back in 1964 when you started doing this, what was the process? You would Braille some, did you Braille it on the Brailler? And... That's right. There was no computer, of course. Uh, at least I didn't have to do it with a slate and stylus. <laughs> this is and true. Lots of people did. Um, but no, I, I had to purchase my own Perkins Brailler, and it, it cost about $200, I think, at the time. And we all did, because CNIB didn't have the money to purchase machines for us, so this was all voluntary. Mm-hmm. And so then uh, we got uh, books from the students, the teachers and so on. They sent them to CNIB, and they got the hard copy Braille back, uh, or... Um, a thermoform copy if we kept the master, and we did. We kept masters uh, for many, many years so that if another student wanted that book, of course, we had the master to run off the plastic copy. Okay, so how long would it take to braille a book like an economics book? Oh, months. Um, maybe I'd get five pages done a day. When I got faster, maybe 10 pages maybe up to 15 pages a, a, a day, depending. And so by the time a student got a book to you and knew that that was the book they were going to use in the, in the classroom, would the class not have been almost over? It would be in many cases, and that's why we were once again pushing to get books early enough so that we could, in fact, meet the deadlines that the students had. What we did, of course, was rip books up into uh, volume sizes and distribute them among however many volumes there were, that many transcribers, so that Ah. we would work at getting that book done as quickly as we possibly could, and then go on to the next one. And of course, some people were faster Brailleists than others, and so they would be given the front volumes, and the slower ones would be given the back volumes because the student wouldn't be there for a little while. So that's what we did. We, we ripped books up. Very rarely did you ever get to Braille one book. And how many volunteers were doing this? Well, it grew, of course, but uh, we had well over 100 volunteers. In Toronto? Or In Toronto. The... Wow. And where did, did people work from home? Did from they their do... home. Everybody and worked at home. With their own machines that they were expected to provide themselves? That's correct. That's amazing dedication. I I think that most of us don't really think about where books come from, certainly not when we were a student. Um, So tell me more about the transcription. So you mentioned now that it's about an eight-month course. Mm -hmm. And if there were volunteers who were interested in doing that, they they no longer have to provide their own machines. They have to have a computer. Okay. So tell tell us about that. Because we use a computer now, so Mm -hmm. and just about everybody seems to have a computer. But yes, we need a, you need to have a Windows-based program on your computer. And so Mac doesn't really work for us. And um, we still use a printed 
manual, instruction manual, and you come to a lesson once a week at CNIB for two hours, and then you go home and you work every day until you finish that lesson, come back the next week, and so on. You send your lesson in via email in electronic file, and the marker will read it either on the screen or probably print it out and read it in what we call simulated braille, black dots on the screen. Okay. And um, not like we used to have to read the hard copy braille. Uh, and then give an error report and email it back to the student before they come to their next class. So what makes an ideal volunteer for this kind of work? Well, you have to be um, interested in literacy, interested in words. You have to be a reader. Uh, somebody who doesn't mind making mistakes and that you just keep working at it till you get it right. Because accuracy is very important in Braille, as you could imagine. If we, I mean, one dot makes a big difference in, oh, yes. in a lot of words. Like we always say in a recipe, it's the difference between cool and cook. Yes, it is. And so, <laughs> you know, if you got the wrong thing and really didn't know what you were doing, you might not be able to guess. And that's just, there are lots of examples like that. So accuracy is, is vital. And so when the course is finished, then the students get a test, a transcriber's test, and they have two weeks in which to do it, to make it perfect. Okay. And um, they can use all their resources. It's not a memory test. It's being able to make your fingers do what you want them to do mm -hmm. accurately. And then... Um, so then they, we, we mark that, and the pass mark is 90. You start with 100, and you use, lose demerits for mistakes. So you can see that we expect perfection, but we realize that we're human, and so 90 is the pass. So somebody would take the eight-month course, and is there a cost to taking that course? Not if you're going to be a CNIB volunteer. That is in Toronto. We're only speaking about Toronto. Unfortunately, okay. we haven't got, uh, you know, subs across the country um, where we could do this. But um, if if they meet the requirements for being a volunteer for CNIB, then yes, if there's no charge for it. We do have a, a correspondence course based on the same manual and everything, um, that we operate across the country. We have well over 100 correspondence students at any time, and people pay to take that course. And is there an expectation if a volunteer says, yeah, this is something I really want to do, and they take the course, is there an expectation that they would volunteer for CNIB for a certain period of time? We ask for a minimum of three years, but what we really expect is a lifetime commitment. <laughs> Which you certainly have given us. So it's, so we've talked about your coming in in 1964 and, and starting um, what turned into be the volunteer coordination um, and bringing volunteers to work with us at CNAB. What happened to Darlene after that? What? Tell me about your journey at CNAB. What else did you do? Well, because I was involved in the library, um, one of the first things that, that we did was organize a bunch of librarians to come and do a print version, working with 
somebody who re could read Braille, like some of our new volunteers who could read the hard copy Braille, and to actually make a print catalog of what was on the shelves in the CNIB library, that the student material and that kind of thing, that nobody had access to except the staff who knew how to read the Braille labels and the Braille title page. And so we did that and made that catalog available in hard copy Braille to students across the country. Because remember, this is when students were just starting to be integrated, and they needed to know what books were available and maybe even let their teachers know what Braille books were available, and maybe some of them would actually, the teacher would be able to choose a book that they could access the Braille copy of. So we, that's one of the things that we did first, first off in the library. And, um, oh, I have lots of stories about things in the library, of course. But uh, then the next thing that we did really was um, start something called the Braille and Transcriber Committee. And it had staff and volunteer Brailleists on it. And we worked to just to, to bring the Braille library into print, really, and um, so that people could access it. And then uh, that became the library division of CNIB in 1972, I think it was, that uh, I was the first chair of that board for the CNIB library. Now, is this still all volunteer work? For me, yes. Wow. Okay. Continue on. So you've got so a division now. That's right. And so, yes, and uh, that was... Uh, I mean, that was a, a hard sell to get that accomplished within the agency, and I sat on the national board as a result of that as well. Uh, it, it was the promotion of Braille. It was building the Braille library. And, of course, it just didn't stop with the Braille library. It included the talking book library as well and the recording studios. And, yes, uh, you know, I remember the old recording studios when I was a new transcriber. Um, they were very interesting. Anyways, we updated them, and then, of course, we got this marvelous facility when we had here, but we a lot of work on, on the talking book production that we did as well. And you were involved with that. So I have to ask the question, which is your favorite? Is it Braille or is it audiobooks? Oh, it's Braille. Why? Because it's something you read yourself, because it's a personal thing. I mean, um, I don't mind listening to something, and if I had no option, that would be wonderful. But uh, to be able to pick up a book and read it and make my own interpretation of it uh, would be the best thing to me. So how do you feel when you hear people say, oh, Braille is a dying art and we don't really need to be teaching ch little children how to read Braille. They've got all this technology and they don't need that any longer. I just say to whomever it is, let's say it's a parent of a child, would you be willing to have the print taken away from your child? Your other children. That's yeah. right. Or to an adult, as, as I've had even somebody at the member of the National Council once said something like that. Okay, then what would happen if you didn't have any print material? It, and it, they don't think about that, you see. 
Well, it's it's so absurd. If we were to say to a parent, we're not going to teach your child to read because, well, they can listen to things. If a sighted child was told that, there'd be an outrage. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we've had uh, conversations about this over the last little while about how parents, if they're not understanding the confidence and the literacy skills that Braille provides their child, uh, there are a lot of us who grew up who maybe didn't have the advantage of learning Braille because we could see a little bit. And so we were reading books at three or four letters each instead of reading Braille at, you know, mm-hmm. hundreds of words <laughs> in an hour. So there's a big difference in, in what can be obtained through your fingertips. There certainly is. And the thing is, you know, um, in all these years that I've been involved with this, you you keep fighting the same battle, and you can't ever stop because it's it's always there. So you, you have to educate people. It, you think you've got, you've got it done. You can rest on your laurels a little bit, but that isn't the way it works. You, you can't stop that advocating for literacy for blind kids. Well, for blind adults, for everybody. It, it shouldn't be an option. I mean, it should just be that's what happens. Well, you're right. It shouldn't be an option. I, I think that, you know, if we all of a sudden decided we're not going to teach little kids how to read anything, uh, sighted or not, there would just be, uh, people would be all over it. And yet we're saying it's okay for children with no sight not to learn Braille. That's why CNIB has to to keep advocating. And so does, so do all the people who, who know Braille. And I remember, too, um, one time um, a group went from CNIB to Ottawa to make some presentation to uh, a committee or whatever. And um, one of the Braille-using people that went, a lawyer, actually, um, handed out everything in hard copy Braille. No print. What happened? Well, they got the message. They finally understood what it was like to be in a room and to be given a piece of paper or to have someone say to you, oh, sorry, we haven't got the Braille copy. Sorry, we couldn't get the Braille done. That just used to infuriate me so much. So, having told us about what it's like not to have something available in Braille, uh, tell us about CNIB's best-kept secret, the Braille room. That's right. It's wonderful. It's a, a room here at CNIB that has four computers in it. Uh, it's small. It's doesn't have a window or anything like that. It has a oval-shaped table, and and then volunteers come in there, and uh, and work, and they also work at home, and we will do anything for a client that they need. Not a book. We're not we're not brailing books, but we're brailing anything that a client might need for free. So there's no cost to having no, this no, done. No, no cost. Something that we just did. Last week was a libretto for um, somebody going off to the opera. Um, What else? Just, I mean, just such interesting things. Whatever somebody thinks that they would like to have in Braille. Um, And we'll do our best to do it. We did a Braille of a diabetic pamphlet this week. Um, We did something for a university student, uh, it was um, to put Braille into uh, an accessibility 
well, pamphlet, I guess, that she, that she had created. Um, just anything that anybody wants will do their, their drug information. So, darling, if somebody wanted a copy of a, a concert schedule or uh, a table plan for a, an upcoming event, could they ask for that kind of thing? Yes, wanted... absolutely. And how many copies could they get? Could they get five, well, ten? What we do is we do a free copy for um, a person who is a client of CNIB, and we mm -hmm. ask for the person's name and the client number. And so that's how we do it. Sometimes we're asked to do more copies for clubs or whatever. Um, and I suppose if you gave us each of the client's numbers and names, there shouldn't be any problem with that. If the client ha or if the uh, organization has a budget for this kind of thing, then probably they should uh, go to one of the the uh, commercial Braille publishers that are all run by, by blind people, by the way. How would you find those? Oh, well, we could even give you the names. We have a list, and they're, they're on the CNI. They used to be on the CNIB website anyways. I haven't looked to see since we redid it whether they're still there. But, um, and they will do that for, uh, for large numbers. Okay. I, I believe that accessible publishing here at CNIB is also starting to accept some small contracts like that to produce more. Now, I mean, we can, we can do it. We have one Braille embosser, and if we need a large run of something, then we have to go to Accessible Publishing and ask them to run it off for us just because it, we'd probably burn the embosser out with, uh, <laughs> without having a, a rest. So, um, so that's something that I... I, I'm really, I really can't answer. That's a, yeah, that's in, okay. In a, but so, I'd certainly like to see that happen, that you could get as, as many copies as you wanted of something or other. And we could certainly do the first copy if somebody else could just take that file and run, run them off. So if I wanted to write a letter to someone and I didn't have any Braille skills, um, could I ask the Braille Room to write that Absolutely. letter for me? And sure. how, how would I go about getting that information to you, and what would you need from me in order to produce that? Ideally, we would like it in a, a Word file. Okay. Um, and fine, if not, then give us the print. We'll Braille it from the print. But if we have it in a Word file, of course, we can use a translation program which we all know and, and use as much as possible because it's faster enables us to do more work. So it, does the translation program replace what the transcriptionist does? Well, to a degree it does. I mean, it, it takes the printed word and translates it into Braille. And if it's just straight, ordinary text, we wouldn't be doing it using uh, the skills of a transcriber. The transcriber who's using the translation program does the editing and putting in the codes that are necessary to format it, and checking, just generally checking the Braille to make sure it's right. Now, if there's something in that document that we're asked to Braille, like a table, then the translation program can't handle that, so the Braillist then sits down and Brailles that and inserts it where it belongs in, in there. So we get lots of things that we, we have to do that with. 
uh, one of the things that we're brailing right now is a text for a music course. And so our music transcribers are brailing the music, and that's going to be in a separate volume. And then the text is going to be being brailed by uh, a couple of braille transcribers. And the nature of the way that pages, the pages are laid out in braille, to scan that information, it would be all over the place. It just, you know, a scanner goes from left to right. Of course, yeah. And so uh, we're doing that by direct entry. The skills of the transcriber are being used to do that because to clean that file up would take far longer than to braille it just by yourself. So when you say direct entry, is that typing on... That's six-key entry, doing Braille. So can you explain how that would look on the computer? You're on not the using, computer? You're not you using the, the Perkins no, to do that. No, you use the six keys, the home keys, for as a typist. On your regular keyboard. On the re regular keyboard. And the keyboard has to allow this to happen with... Not all, every keyboard does it, but yes. you, And you use those six keys, depressing them, one up to six fingers at a time to make the Braille dots. So it's like brailing on a Perkins brailler, except you're using the six keys on the computer. So what does that come up on the screen? Does it come Black up in dots. simulated braille dots? That's right. And so the, 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 the transcriptionist would be able to determine by proofreading it visually that it looks like it should be correct in braille. That's correct. When it comes up. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. It is. It's, it was the greatest thing that happened when we were able to to use the computer for doing Braille. And when you think about what we used to do before, of course, um, yes, we could erase a dot once in a while from the hand-transcribed mm -hmm. Braille, but, you know, they had a way of coming back. Yes. And, <laughs> and so um, you'd get to the line 25, the bottom line, you'd make a stupid mistake. You have to rip the page out and start all over again. So... The, the computer gives you a Braille eraser. <laughs> That's exactly ah, what yes. it does. Just the greatest thing, yes. Tell me, though, do you miss the sound of that Perkins? Well, I'll tell you, yes. That it certainly brings back memories. But we have a Perkins Brailler that we're using just about every day in the Braille room. We do all kinds of things like certificates that are in print. We put the Braille on them by hand. Uh, somebody comes in with a birthday card or a wedding invitation, or a whatever that they want to give to somebody who is a Braille reader, and we'll Braille right on that card in Braille using the Perkins Brailler. You know, as a Braille reader, I've on occasion gotten unexpected thank you notes in Braille, and it makes such an impact on me as, you know, I, I, that does much more for me than, you know, the Tim cards or any of those other honorary kinds of things because if someone has taken the time to figure out how to braille something for me, the impact is just enormous. Mm -hmm. We do get people coming in, and we're we're happy to have them come in and, and get things done for people that are braille readers that mm -hmm. they know. So, Darlene, I have a little story I want to share with you. I, as you know, work with young children and their parents. And I had a parent come to me after the Braille Conference uh, in 2018 and ask, how can I get access to some support from the Braille Room? So I linked her up, 
And her daughter was struggling a lot with the Braille that she was getting from school and learning how she's in grade two, this little girl, and was really struggling with her reading skills. And she wasn't very interested in all of that kind of stuff. So mom apparently sent you some material. And in the last five months, this child has gone from a beginner reader to a grade three level because of the Braille she's received from the Braille room. That's such a nice story. Thank you. It's a very true story. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And uh, she, mom is just so thrilled that she is able to get this Braille produced for this little girl. And it has made such a difference in her reading. So thank you for that. You're very welcome. Today we've been in the studio with Darlene Bogard. And Darlene, thank you for your 55 years of dedication to our cause. And uh, we hope that you're going to continue advocating on our behalf. And hopefully we'll have you back and talk again. Well, Braille keeps you young. (laughs) It certainly does that. (laughs) All because of Braille. That's right. Thank you very much, Rhonda. For more CNIB Foundation podcasts, visit cnib.ca slash podcasts.